You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Where do you live exactly? I'm in Milwaukee, and then he's in, what would you call it, Minneapolis? Let's, let's call it Minneapolis, just north okay. of Minneapolis, yeah. Okay. So we, where are you currently now? I'm currently in Louisville. Okay. And uh, tomorrow I'll be hitting, heading for Charlottesville, so I'll be there for the meet. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So you're in flag right now? I'm in flag, yeah. Uh, I'll be here through till start of December and then going back to New Zealand for a couple of months and then I'll be back in flag again. What part of New Zealand? Uh, New Plymouth, which is okay. a, it's a small town in the North Island. It's about four hours south of Auckland. Okay. I raced yeah. on the South Island once down by Nelson. It was beautiful. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sort of top of the South Island. Yeah. yeah, yeah nice. It. Yeah. That is a good spot. That's a random place to go for a race. Very random it was a connection <laughs> to a connection of a friend and it very random, nice. but I would go back. Yes. Right. Well, guys, yeah, I, first of all, thank you for the book. Thanks for coming on. But I just kind of want to, I started reading the book and it, first of all, it spoke to me because recently my father wrote a book about the UW Green Bay women's basketball program and everything I was reading in yours mirrored theirs. Theirs is called the Green Bay Way. And it's about passing on generation to generation, the Green Bay Way, how it's done from coach to coach, senior led teams, all of that. And as I start reading this, it's like, this is just the running version of, you know, what he just spent six years compiling and interviewing about. It was the same sentiments and they're, they're a mid-major women's powerhouse. And it was, it was very reminiscent of each other, but I got excited and I called up, Kirk and I have a mutual friend who ran at NAU. Uh, he was uh, there during Heinz and I chat, I, I called him just out of the blue this morning and almost 90 minutes later, he's still ranting and raving about the program and telling stories about it all. So just from the start, I think it's important for the audience to hear that despite the fact that every book is going to play up the, the, the prowess of the program and the strength of the history, I just had 90 minutes of my friend who I trust echoing every single thing that you wrote in your book. And it was really cool to hear again and have it reiterated. So it, it was just a, it was a very accurate depiction. Yeah. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad that yeah. someone could, uh, yeah, could confirm what we're saying and confirm that the, the stories and the culture and everything is, is accurate. Mm-hmm. So well, it's a history book, isn't it? Right. I mean, and in new age culture and especially with like social media being so prevalent and media in general, the last decade, like the younger generation. Right. They don't know anything other than current NAU. Right. So like actually giving people a chance to go back and understand how it came to be. I don't know. I didn't know any of that. And Bracken and I are pretty infused, I would say, in the, the running world. And I'm 40. I've been around a little longer than him. But like, um, didn't know any of that crap either. And so like, it was just really interesting to see how like the beginning and like the names was even going back to George Young and, and Ryan and settling their roots there. It's like, huh, it had to start somewhere. So it was just like a really interesting walk back in time. And I just think a lot of like new age runners don't know. I can't imagine they know any of this is I assume you guys have probably discovered that after writing it. Is that correct? Well, I was there. 
I mean, I came as a, as <laughs> a high school senior and walked into a secret dorm on the seventh floor and the door next door to me was open and uh, walked in and I'm fairly gregarious. And so I walked in and I said, I'm Ron Manning. This guy sitting in the, on the bed says, well, I'm Jim Ryan. And so that was my first introduction to Jim Ryan. And uh, uh, George and Billy Mills were living off campus because they were uh, married and had a family, each of them. Uh, they were older. And uh, so uh, Conrad Nightingale and uh, and Jim Ryan were our next door neighbors, myself and Bill O'Neill. I mean, we grew up with stories about these gentlemen and their exploits and their mythical feature, you know, creatures and it's 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 hard to grasp that a senior in high school would just walk up and just start there. What what was it? Was it a monumental moment for you, or is it just like here's another runner? Well, it was a monumental run, uh, moment, but uh, you know, at once you got past the the awe, shock, and awe, you realize he puts his shoes on the same way as everybody else does. And then in fact, you know, Jim was going through a a time of injury during that. Uh, lead up to the 1968 Olympic Games, and so he was struggling a little bit during that time. And you know, and and of course, Billy Mills uh, was an icon as well as George Young. You know, and so, but I knew George from uh, he was a high school coach in the uh, in Casa Grande, Arizona, and so Bill O'Neill and I were uh, competitors, and so. Uh, George was a, an opposing coach as well as a famous runner. Hmm. Hmm. I can see we're going to get into the weeds here right away. And so I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I don't think we even told our listeners who we're talking to yet. So maybe we should do that real quick. Um, <laughs> so we're chatting with Ron Mann and Matt Baxter. They wrote a book, Running Up the Mountain, about NAU's, uh, let's say, dynasty and prowess. Um, and we're chatting with you guys and I was hoping, um, one, is this book released already? Cause sometimes we get early copies. Have, has this officially been released? Matt, go ahead. Yes, it has. Yeah. So it, the official release date was November 7th. So it's been out now for, yeah, a little bit over a week, but we've had copies since the beginning of okay. September. So people have slowly been getting copies over these past couple of months, but now you can, you can buy it through Amazon. You can buy it through Solstice. You can buy it. Just yeah, just about anywhere online now. I was. Well, I went on Audible to try to li give it a good listen while I in my commutes wasn't on there yet. So I would love to hear your sweet accent reading it to me, uh, Matt, if you could maybe on Audible one of these days. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe the Audible will go up one of these one of these days. Um, we're we actually have an ebook that, as far as I know, has has arrived. So that should be going up soon because obviously not everyone wants a, a physical copy. So you should be able to get that. Uh, the audible one would be interesting if it was me, because there's just going to be things I would say that people would have no idea how I'm pronouncing something. Mm -hmm. So you would get the gist of the book, but you would probably miss a few things if it were my accent sneaking through. Uh, we would, you know, the perfect voice would be Mike Smith, but yeah. are we really realistically going to get Mike Smith to spend hours recording a book? Probably not. Uh, so we'll we'll try find the next best person for this thing. You know, I think he I think he could be convinced to do it. We grew up on running with the buffaloes, and what that book did for their program is probably incalculable. And so I think Mike could just be an investment in his next ten recruiting classes to read that book for you. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, I think people would love that. If maybe we could use this podcast to really reach out to him and get him excited yeah. about yeah. it. Or uh, guilt him or shame awesome. him or whatever. 
and, and, he, and exactly Mike, yeah well yeah, i'm not perfect. Mike, if i'm not mistaken ron turned down a job over there as a buffalo okay um <laughs> so could you guys introduce yourselves real quick then um and am i right ron you turned down a job with the Good guy, Colorado. At some point along the uh, line, I did not turn down. I believe the job. in the process. I, it never got that far. There were three of us that were um, oh. considered: Mark Wetmore, uh, Vince O'Boyle, and myself. And uh, uh, I pulled my name out of it before I went and interviewed, and I pulled my name out because uh, I was going through mm. some personal things that would be too costly to me. Uh, had a family back in Flagstaff that couldn't commute with me, and so. Uh, Consequently, uh, I pulled my name out. Mm. So, you know, certainly they made the right decision with Mark Wetmore. I mean, they, he's a perfect fit there for for University of Colorado and has done a great job over all those years. But uh, uh, when Jerry Quiller, who uh, was there, uh, resigned, then it was open for uh, discussion at that point. And so uh, there were three of us that interviewed. We since mm. we're Midwestern, well, since here, you're chatting, could just. Uh, uh, since since we're in the Midwest, we have a lot of small programs, mid-major programs. Like we have Wisconsin and in in University of Minnesota, but outside of that, we don't have a lot of powerhouse. And so we see this progression of coaches who come up at a mid-major or a smaller funded, and then they bolt for greener pastures or big budget as soon as they see it. And more often than not, it's just not the the fairy tale they were led to believe. And it's always interesting when someone, for one reason or another, decides to make the greener pastures where they are, like where the community's already sold, where it's already good, where you already have roots, and then you d you make the powerhouse. And I don't know if you probably if you saw around that corner, but the fact that it worked out so well for the program is kind of cool. Well, I felt there are so many things that tied me to Flagstaff for so long. I spent twenty four years there, and and I love Flagstaff, and and I continue to love Flagstaff. Every time I go back, I I come up the hill and I, as soon as I see the peaks in view, I say I'm home. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it's, it is home to me and, and Flagstaff and NAU uh, was always home. And so I, I really never felt the need to leave there until it was, you know, I was in my fifties and it was time for the program to move on and that, you know, and have somebody who uh, had the energy that I had when I was, you know, 30, when I took over the program. So, uh, and, and plus when, when you've been a place a very long time, like 24, 25 years, um, sometimes administration believes that you can do everything on less. And, uh, mm -hmm. thankfully the administration at Northern Arizona university has seen through that all the way through. And, and specifically, uh, you know, when Eric Hines was running the program and then they were deciding that Mike was going to come in, they hired Mike to shadow Eric for that year that they call it the overlap year is what we called it in the book. And, and that was brilliant by both the athletics director and the president to, uh, expose the student athletes to the both coaches and make that smooth transition because uh, you could have certainly seen another road bump uh if if they wouldn't have had the foresight to do that no i'm getting to this i'm getting these guys to introduce themselves now bracken i'm off so, in the weeds we have yeah. a lot of 
Right. Well, I will love the weeds. That's where we live. But we have a lot of listeners. We have trail runner athletes. We have casual couch to 5K. We have top end elite athletes, uh, some pro runners that listen all over the map. Some are going to go. I don't know anything about NAU and the dynasty. Some are going to say I have no idea who the heck Ron Mann or Matt Baxter is. Right. Um, But like they should. Right. And so could you just formalize this just a little bit so we could get to know, like, if you could give me a quick Cliff Notes version of who you are, Matt, and then and then Ron as well, that would be fantastic. Just to give some of our listeners that aren't in the know an idea who you guys are. That would be great. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So I'm Matt. I, I grew up in New Zealand, small town called New Plymouth. It's actually about the same size as Flagstaff where I live now. I came over to the U.S. when I was 21 for college. I was a little bit older and typically most people come to the US straight out of high school, but I left it a few years and didn't have a lot of options when I was looking at colleges and and Flagstaff was in the end basically the only option I had. Uh, Flagstaff being Northern Arizona University where I came to. And so I was recruited by Eric Hines, who was the coach there at the time. And I spent three years uh, with the NAU. That was when we won our first three national titles. Uh, and since then, I've been running professionally for Hoka Northern Arizona Elite, still based here in Flagstaff. And I saw you just raced recently. You won a 10-miler? I just won a 10-miler. Yeah, the the Pittsburgh 10-miler. Um, Congrats. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was my first time doing the 10-mile distance, so I guess a, a personal best. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a fun event, fun course. <laughs> I, I, I loved it, yeah. Well, and I believe um, amongst those three national titles, you were, you were runner-up, I believe, one year at, at uh, Cross Nats, right? Yeah, my, my placings were my first year in 2016, I was 11th, and then 2017, I was second. And then 2018 was my roughest year, I, I got 15th. It's a rough year. Okay, yeah. It's terrible showing. Yeah. yeah Trust me, mate. When you're going from um, second to 15th, <laughs> it's a rough year. <laughs> yeah. 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 Eh, fair. And and then, Ron, could you just introduce yourself? I mean, I think people are getting a clue already, but who you are. And, and I'd like to know how the idea of this book came to be, how you two came together versus, you know, other NAU alum or previous coaches. So if you could walk us through that, Ron, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'm Ron Mann. I was the... Uh, track and field and cross-country coach at Northern Arizona University from uh, 1980. I started the women's program in at NAU in 1980 and took over the combined program in 1982. I was at Northern Arizona as a university for 24 years and, uh, and uh, was able to get two seconds, two-thirds, and two-fourths and could never win a national championship. So I was elated in 2016 when uh, – Eric was able to bring the team together and and win their first national championship. And then I saw as that program has continued to move, I retired from uh, teaching and coaching in Arizona and came to Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, ran the University of Louisville uh, track and cross-country program for uh, nine years and then retired from collegiate coaching and now coach professional marathoners, probably the most notable of which was Wesley Career, who won the Boston Marathon in 2012, and I now coach his younger brother, uh, John Career, who just got uh, uh, fourth at the Chicago Marathon. So uh, I keep my hand in the, the in the mix and uh, love watching and being around Northern Arizona University. So I am a uh, proud alumnus and a and a proud uh, retiree of Northern Arizona University. And 
I believe here we have a um we have a national championship meet coming up in what I don't know two days three days no what day is it on few days Saturday right yeah. Saturday two days okay it's a Thursday um what's the investment level here from you guys in uh, Northern Arizona's performance how are you guys feeling about it where are we at with all that. I'm I'm going to be there, and I'm very very excited, and uh, I'm I'm really really excited for what the men can do. But I'm equally excited with uh, the men uh, with the women's program because uh, they've got a legitimate shot at winning that women's national championship, which uh, I started 43 years ago this fall. So I've got a particular interest in seeing them win that. Uh, we got third in 1991 on the women's side, and. Uh, and I would love to see them improve upon that and get that national trophy as well as the men. And, and to have both of them, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, as a Wisconsin guy, it wouldn't be that great. <laughs> <laughs> Is Wisconsin going to do something this year? <laughs> I mean, oh, I think oh. they showed at Nutty Cone there's a potential. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, would would the odds be on them? Would I put my money on them? No, but crosses with the heart, not with the money. Oh, mate, of course. Mm. No matter what, you always gotta you always gotta root for your home team. No matter what kind of shots they have, so long as you're sending your energy their way, you never know what's gonna happen. And and yeah, I mean, I think the me being being an alumni of of the team, I am obviously a hundred percent rooting for for the guys. And my my girlfriend was on the NAU women's team at the time. We both came over from New Zealand um, to Flagstaff together. And she was on the NA women's team and multiple times, man, just when they didn't make it out of regionals, there were, there, there was a 10 year period where the women's team wasn't making nationals. And I saw that devastation every time of, Oh, we're so close to making the national meet, but just not quite getting there. And it was always, yeah. I mean, I, I always felt for the women's team in general, but because I had someone who I was so close to on that team, mm-hmm. I, I felt it even when I'm at home and for the rest of the season. And um, so that was always tough. So for them to be in a position where they're not only just fighting for a podium, I mean, they're, they're fighting for the top of the podium, um, having just gone 10 years where they didn't make the meet, they only just made the meet again in 2019. This progression for them has just been, mm. has been incredible. So, I mean, for... Yeah, for a, for a lumberjack to be able to watch and know that both the men and women have chances of getting to the top of the podium, I mean, this is going to be this is going to be a special one to watch for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, when you travel for this, are you able to just step back and enjoy it, or are you down there like hanging on the fringe of the huddle? And like, what's your role at nationals these these days? Uh, I'm an alumni and a and a um, interested observer. Uh, no, I, I don't get in the huddle, but, uh, certainly, uh, uh, I'm watching from afar and what I, I find myself doing is, you know, when, when you've coached for as many years as I have, you, you go to certain spots of the course and no matter what course it is, you find that spot that, so you reminisce back over the times that you've been there and then you try and relive that a little bit. And then certainly in 2016, when they won their first one, uh, I, I just, it, it was beyond um, emotions for me. And I, I think Matt can probably speak to that as well as anybody, because um, I was walking back down to the, uh, 
to the huddle. And uh, as I was walking with the president and the athletic director, and I'm going to say a word here that's probably not real good, but I said, damn it, we finally did it. And uh, so I'm hoping I can say that twice this time. So, uh, uh, and I do have a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of superstition in me. And so there's some things that I go through as I get ready for a meet, uh, whether it's something I'm watching, I've still got a lot of competitive spirit in me. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. What do the women, what do the women need to do to win? And what do the men need to do to win in both of your opinions? What do they need to go do? First, How's it going to play ideas. out? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if if we go with the woman first, I think the biggest thing is just is execution. I mean, this is a team that it has. We've had a lot of transfers come into the program, and so although we have a, a lot of national experience within the group, it's not necessarily the national experience of all of them running together on the same team. So I think for them to just go out, trust the team, execute. They don't, I mean, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, they don't have to have like an out of the world performance. They just have to have a really good solid day. And honestly, like that's going to, that's going to possibly be enough. But at the same time, I mean, you have NC State, which is also really strong. They've just done back to back. They're obviously going to want to do a three peat. Um, although coming from someone who, who was a part of a three peat, that third one is, um, you got a little bit more pressure on that mm. third one. So I think, NAU is actually coming at it from a good place because they kind of, they don't have a lot to lose. Um, they're coming from sixth place last year. And, um, for them, for them to, to get on top of the podium, I mean, that's just, it's all just icing on the cake, basically. Um, and then when you look at the guys, uh, I mean, I know these boys, I, I know that they're going to get it done on the day. And when I say that, I know that they're going to perform all those guys a hundred percent behind the team. You'll probably see a bunch of selfless running out there where everyone's just doing what they can to get those team points and try and put the team on top of the podium. Um, but once again, they're going to have stiff competition. I mean, Oklahoma State, we haven't really seen a lot from them this season. We haven't really seen how their team actually looks in a, in a real real competition race. So I think the NAU men are going to have their hands full. The women are going to have their hands full. But the best thing is it's going to be an exciting race. I have a hundred percent faith behind behind my teams, but I think everyone who's going to be watching, I mean, I think it's going to be it's going to be really fun to watch. I couldn't agree more. I, I think that the the I think you see two teams that are really going to be running at um, at the national championship. I think on the women's side, it's it's Northern Arizona and North Carolina State, and on the men's side, it's it's Northern Arizona and Oklahoma State. That's now there might be an outlier of some sort that comes from nowhere, but you know, certainly both of those teams are very experienced. And like Matt said, with the transfers coming into uh, Northern Arizona's women's team, they've got a lot of experience and particularly upfront experience that can come in and, and make a very significant uh, uh, viewpoint up front. I mean, they can be running right up front. And certainly the men are, are capable of, you know, any one of – two or three guys could win that race. So I think they're both positioned very, very well to win both national championships. This every I national championship feels like it's going to be the best we've seen in a while, but this has like the perfect chemistry for a perfect national champ. Or like you said, on the men's side, there's two or three guys that could reasonably expect to win. 
and you have two teams, Oklahoma State and NAU, who truly believe they're about to win. So you've got the battle on both individual and team. And then on the women's side, you have, you know, Tui's an all-time collegiate great, but Valby's kind of like her can be her kryptonite. And you have the women's battle. So you have the team and the one-two on both sides, both genders. I don't think it seems like rarely is there a year when all four boxes are checked. Two team battles on each side, plus heavyweight contenders at the top. This is a really exciting nationals for a running fan. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I um even if I'm just looking at the guys race, I mean, I I was there last year in Oklahoma when it was a tie for between NAU and, and Oklahoma for that win, and I. Because we went through all kinds of different emotions, where originally we thought NAU won, so us alumni who were there were absolutely losing it, and then the results refreshed, and then, oh no, Oklahoma won, and the home crowd is losing it, and then it refreshes again, and it was all this back and forth, and I think there's going to be a lot of pent-up uh, energy just carrying from last year, mm. where Oklahoma, I mean, there was there was a, there was like a... um there would have been a storybook result for them. Had they won on their home course, that would have been incredible. And NAU just kind of just slightly took that away from them with a, within a mm-hmm. tie break, the closest you could possibly get. And a tie break rule that had only just recently changed. And had it been the original rule, Oklahoma would have won. And so it's just, I think going into this, you're going to have an Oklahoma team, which is incredibly passionate, passionate about trying to topple NAU. And you're going to have an NAU team that wants to do everything to to try and get themselves a four peat. I think that that men's side is going to be a battle, man. I think you're gonna you're gonna see some really exciting stuff coming out of that. You use the term uh, selfless running. You said NAU's men may have to run selfless. Uh, I believe is the term you used. And what would that look mm-hmm. like? Would that look like? Uh, and we'll get to the book here in a sec. But like, would that look like? Bosley and Nico Young going out hard and stringing out the field early like they did last year does that mean pack running or does that mean like what does selfless running actually what does that mean to you like what yeah exactly explain that yeah so I would say selfless running is just your entire focus as the team so I don't know exactly what the NAU plan is I can kind of like predict somewhat of what it might look like based on how they race and based on how their workouts have been going but how I know how they race is that they're going to be going out there with the goal of trying to win a team title. You're not going to have people who are like, oh, you you four guys could have a chance at trying to win individually. So why don't you guys do this thing to make sure that you have the best chance of winning as an individual? NAU is going to figure out whatever kind of race plan it is. I don't know what it is, but they're going to do something to make sure that they put themselves in the best chance of winning a national title. Um, that's how it was from when I was on the, I mean, it's how the team has probably always been, but just my experience of being on the team, that's exactly how I've seen it from 2016 through to now. The, the game plans change based on what kind of athletes you have in the race, but the game plan is always win for the team. I don't care what you get individually. So long as your individual result helps the team perform, then that's all that matters. Mm, That makes sense. I, Ron, I want to kick this to you then following that up. Most of our listeners, like, it's just running. Like, you go and you run as hard and as fast as you can, and you get to the finish line, and that's it. Like, it's just running. You just go out there and survive, and then hopefully cross the finish line, and you're happy with your effort. 
That's not what Matt's explaining, obviously. Like, what's your, if you would help people understand, like, what is it, what is like the strategy involved at the top end of the collegiate sport at a national championship? Like, what are some of the things the athletes and coaches are thinking about? I think you coach each individual athlete, but you coach them collectively as a group. And, and what Matt's referring to here is, is really the, the culture and the essence of, Northern Arizona University, and particularly any uh, great organization, you pull together as a team and you take all of your individual strengths and you add those up so that the culmination of all of them is better than each individual part. And I think that that's what you saw in 2016 when, you know, it was gas, gas, gas. And what happened there was that you had uh some individuals that really took it to the front and uh i i think that it's very specific for you to get a team together and take the each one of their strengths and as a coach i think and mike's doing a wonderful job of this of of visiting with each athlete and finding out what their individual goals is and then as a coach you blend that together it's a great formula to bring it all together and then as a coach you blend it and you say okay this is the way we're going to approach this race for you and this is the race that we're going to approach it for everybody and then it all falls together and i think that's one of the beauties of what northern arizona university cross country has done i think what a lot of runners who casually run or haven't run a big championship fail to recognize is that if this were a time trial, yes, everyone can go out and run your best strategy. And that is the best cumulative time for the team. But that in a championship race, there's just a a large percentage of people who are going to get spit out the back. And, and that process right there, the fact that not everyone can run well at a championship race because it's too packed up, it's too big. You have people who aren't used to running in crowds because they're the best on their team are suddenly in, you know, 150th place and don't know how to handle it. Cross country seems like it'd be the simplest sport to coach, but at the championship level, it's as complex as most sports because it doesn't abide by normal running rules. I couldn't agree more in that, you know, you... And a lot of it is having the confidence where your other athletes are and being able to see them and be able to feel them around you. And and if you get one of your athletes that uh, gets separated, it's it's real lonely out there in a crowd. You get stuck behind a whole group and particularly as you're running around turns and everything like that, you can get pinched off, if you will, and, and not be able to get out and you get stuck back in 150th position and it's very hard to work your way up through that group so that's where coaching comes in and you really got to talk to each individual athlete and know if there's somebody that can come from behind you got to get them ready to come from behind but not too far behind Hmm. we had this uh conversation so i was lucky enough to be a part of a national championship cross-country team in in college as well division three oshkosh um, so very different than Division One. It meant the world to us at the time, right? But we had a chance to talk to one of my uh, former teammates a couple of weeks ago. He's now their head coach, and we were talking about the struggles um, of coaching a team and coaching the individuals. Uh, Bracken and I are both. Uh, we do personalized one-on-one coaching. We made a career out of it, right? But we deal with one athlete at a time, and we can completely tweak the mindset, the training, everything 
It's individualized. And then you talk about a whatever man roster, a 20 man roster, whatever you guys carry. And then you talk about, well, I know this guy really burns out towards the end of the year. So does he really need to be doing two quality sessions a week? Some of the guys are doing a hundred miles, but this guy's doing 40 because that's what he needs to do and spend half his time on the bike. Like, could you talk through, and I know, and maybe, you know, as an athlete of the team, Matt, you could speak on it, but like the nuances of that are stressful to me because now it's very simple. It's me and you. I coach you and we talk. It's one-on-one, but that's not the way it works. And I coach high school girls track and that was already a nightmare. And this was like a, you know, a JV type squad. And now we're talking stakes and salaries and potential future careers of these athletes. Yet you have to coach them as a team and individuals. Like, I don't know if you can speak more on that is what I'm getting at. I just feel like it has to be very nuanced. Matt, you want to take that? Yeah, for sure. Yes, sir. My experience, like if I take my time on the NAU team and how I would say the what I saw with a Mike and how Mike Smith, the coach of NAU, and how he juggled that was you you have to look at each person as an individual. If you give everyone the exact same train, well, there's certain things which are going to be the same. You want the you want everyone lining up at the same workouts. Like that's pretty much needs to be the same because you want you want everyone kind of working together. Um but mileage is going to differ. What days certain people are running on is going to differ. Um, I always, we used to joke on the NAU team, and this is funny looking back now, con- considering the careers that these guys are having. Um, but I just remember Luis Krahova, uh, who's who just recently got fourth at World Champs in the 5K, uh, and then Jordy Beamish, who just recently got a fifth in the steeplechase at World Champs as well. Um, so those two guys, uh, they... <laughs> They got fit quick. So if they were doing really high intensity stuff early on in the season, then sometimes they would get partway through the season and they're, they're good. They're ready to go. And then the, the longer the season goes on, it's, they started maybe like dipping off a little bit. And so we'd, the rest of us would start doing workouts and start building things up and, and everything. And Luis and, and Jordy would jump in for maybe one workout a week and we're like oh okay you guys just get fit too quick so you don't have to work out with the rest (laughs) of us and so we would joke about it but (laughs) mike was being smart he knew these guys he knew that they need to be taking a bit more of an easy route earlier on so that when the end of the season comes they're peaking like the rest of us some of us just needed a bit more time um and you have to take into account people's injury history as well there's a guy like Blaze Farrow, for example, um, when he was doing really well, when his mileage was being pushed, oftentimes he would break. And so they tried to find a real sweet spot with mileage where he can survive the season and be ready to go come nationals. And um, I was someone who really high intensity would I would struggle with a bit more. That's where injuries could start popping up. So I had to be careful with that. And you just have to take an individual approach because at the end of the day, if you get to the end of a cross-country season and you only have three or four guys who are peaking and you have a couple of your top seven who are kind of on the fence, borderline injured, one of your guys who you hoped was going to be in your top seven isn't even in the mix because they got hurt a month ago. What's the point? I mean, you don't even have a team at that point, you want to make sure that you work with everyone so that come nationals in November, people might have had different paths to the start line. But once you're on the start line, everyone's basically in the same place. I completely agree. And and not only that, but I think it's a trust of, of each individual athlete of the other team members in that 
you know, you got to realize and, and what the team realizes that there are athletes that come around more quickly and some that get injured and so on and so forth. So the rest of the team has got to trust that and they don't look at the, you know, that somebody's not showing up at the start line or they're doing part of the workout. It's not that they're trying to get away with less. It's just they have a different way of getting to the same place. And, uh, you know, I had a runner very early on, a gal by the name of Angela Chalmers, and she ended up winning the national championship, and I held her back two-thirds of the way through the season and and brought her along slowly because once she came on, she came on hard. And uh, so you have to coach each individual athlete, but then work them into your system. And Mike's done a wonderful job of mixing uh, individual athletes into, you know, each individual uh, team. And it's just been great. So how early does that process start? Are you starting your freshman on kind of a one-size-fits-all, minimum-effective approach? Or are you starting trying to find out from day one, establish your – that that – that interaction, which what works for you, what do you believe works for you? How do you see that working here? How how do you, or is it just, we're going to find three years, three years of data, and then we're going to start. I think you, I think you take that freshman and you take input from them that freshman year. You really try and watch them. Yeah. Yeah. You put them into the overall system, but you also got to look at their individual, um, abilities and their strengths that they come into the system so you can't put one one uh shoe fits all it just doesn't work that way so it's important that you begin very early in their career really really communicating with them you know somebody once asked me what events i coach and i said i don't coach events i coach athletes Mm. and so each one's a little bit different Mm. and the way you talk to one athlete might motivate them one way and you talk to another athlete, try and motivate them that same way. And it just doesn't fit. So as a freshman, you really look for that relationship between coach and athlete, and then you build on that uh, uh, relationship. And then you do that with each one of those athletes. And then you try and meld them all together into a team. And as you look at the way that the, the team has come together right now on the men's side, It is just phenomenal the way those athletes trust each other. Hmm. Hmm. Um, Ron, you started coaching in 1980, was it? Is that the year you said? At the NCAA? I coached the high school level uh, for four years. And then in 1976, I came up and ran the Northern Arizona program for one year. And then I come back as uh, at Northern Arizona 1980. Okay. And then when was your last year coaching uh, the collegiate level? Uh, 2013. I coached 2013. So what is that? 30, 33 years? Uh, Is that math right? (laughs) A lot of years. (laughs) Well, okay. And so 33 years. So 1980 to 2013. um, I imagine a lot has changed. I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying that. My curiosity is how you've seen collegiate distance running transform. I, whatever comes to mind, I'm actually curious, like a then and now sort of scenario. Like the early 80s still feel old school to me, like legends of the past, right? And then you get into the 90s and now I feel it'd be beginning the new age in my eyes anyways with the Kennedys and 
whomever else. But could you walk me like what what was coaching like in the early eighties compared to when you left in the early two thousands or or two thousand teens? Like, could you just describe that to me? Well, like, what was it like back then? Bring us back. <laughs> what was it like back then? Well, a lot of the the science yeah. wasn't there. I mean, we we developed the science in that, uh, and particularly the the knowledge of altitude. I mean. Uh, there was almost no uh, knowledge of altitude before the 1968 Olympic Games. And then as as you go on through that, but in the 80s, uh, there was a lot more, uh, you know, more mileage is better, 100 miles a week and pound and pound and pound and all of that. And, and then uh, you got into interval training and there was a lot of interval training and a lot of long runs. And, and then the tempos came in and uh, that really changed the uh the the way that you design training programs and we learned a lot from the africans and we learned a lot from the europeans and that the europeans were doing a lot of scientific stuff and that the the germans and you know dieter bauman and and all of the people from germany and and what they did and then uh certainly the africans and and the way that they trained a whole different way and lots of long hard runs and lots of very, very easy runs. So the collegiate running then adapted that as we had a lot of international athletes coming into the United States from all kinds of different places. And so we began to uh, evolve as, as, as a sport. And then when you throw the pandemic in there, I think the pandemic really changed the way that uh, collegiate running, uh, because we had two years there that, you know, you, all you did was train and you didn't have a lot of racing. And so I think it really helped in some ways, the times and the, uh, the way that people got a good, strong base in underneath them during the pandemic. Could you, if you could walk me, let's say it's the, let's say it's the first two weeks of official team practice and it's 1980. What is the team doing then? And then walk me through the first two weeks, like a week in the first two weeks of team's official practice in 2010. Like what, the reason I ask this is Bracken and I have coached for, I don't know how long now, but like, if I, I wouldn't prescribe the same stuff I was prescribing five years ago. I've learned, you know, over, it's just like, it evolves. Right. So walk me through, like, what would have been a day in the life of one of your athletes in 1980? And then let's say 2010, first two weeks of season, what would those look like? Well, you would. even in, in, in 1980, you would have uh, two days of, of long runs. And when I say long runs, you'd have a, uh, a Sunday or a Saturday long run, and, and it might be an 18-miler. And then on a Tuesday, every Tuesday, we always did intervals, always did intervals, and particularly uh, 400s at the time because that's what interval training was. It was a big deal then. So and then – Tuesday, you would have uh, two a day, so you have an early morning run and an easy run in the afternoon, a recovery run. And then uh, maybe on uh, Wednesday, you'd have a fartlek of some sort. Uh, and if you didn't have a race that weekend, you'd have two easier days and then a long, long day on uh, on Saturday. And your total mileage would probably be in, on the men's side in the neighborhood of, you know, uh, 75 to 90 miles a week and on the women's side between uh, 50 and 65. So, uh, and then, uh, so how that changed in 2010, would you would have thrown a, a tempo in there probably on Thursday and, and uh, 
maybe some uh, farlic or, or repeats of some sort. Now you're putting repeats in. We weren't doing a lot of repeats in the early 80s. It was interval and long runs where the repeats and the upper uh, lactate threshold became much more uh, prevalent because we got more research, uh, particularly by doing lactate testing and that kind of thing that happened in the 90s and into the 2000s. And so we were able to get data that would give us better ideas of, you know, the lower lactate threshold and then the higher lactate threshold. And so you do repeats that would try and simulate the uh, pushing that lactate threshold up. So uh, the week would in 2010 would be uh, probably a recovery run on uh, Monday uh, and then Tuesday, a repeat and a morning run. And then Wednesday, a, an easy run recovery. Thursday, a tempo run of some sort and maybe a second shorter run. And then on Saturday, a long run. And by then, uh, I got to the point where I was taking Sundays off and uh, getting enough mileage in the other days by two-a-day runs and, and lengthening those mm. tempo runs out. So did that answer your question? Yeah, perfectly. That's exactly what I I expected sort of that answer. And so I'm glad that's what you said, because I assumed it had transitioned that way. Um, and now okay. we're, yeah, no, now that's, that's we're transitioning perfect. more even to, you know, you're seeing double thresholds and and that kind of thing. And so your two-a-day workouts, where before you would get an easy morning run and then a maybe a tempo run in the afternoon. But now you're seeing, you know, a tempo run in the morning and then a another modified tempo run in the afternoon sometimes on a thursday in today's world hmm. um matt have you seen a transition since uh you are you how old are you 29 29 yep 29 uh in your so i guess you've been you've been in the states for what nine years ish or something have you seen any sort of training philosophy changes in the pro running community or collegiate scene since you started to now notable trends yeah, for sure. I think the biggest thing is is kind of like what Ron was saying is the introduce is more of an introduction of the threshold training, um, and especially with the double threshold. That I mean, even if we just take like the the NAU team as as we're talking about, you take NAU as an example. I mean, when when Mike first came in in twenty seventeen, we had bits of of threshold training mixed in mixed in with what we were doing but we weren't doing a bunch of sessions that were just threshold and you now go what are, how far removed do we like another seven years beyond um six or seven years beyond when mike first came in um and now yeah you have double threshold the training looks almost completely different to what it was in 2017 when we were still winning national titles under mike smith um mm. They're doing completely different stuff now. He's he does a very good job at keeping the training evolving with the time. Um, and even if we look at my team, Northern Arizona Elite, same thing. I mean, we just we've we've just gone through recent coaching changes, but the the training just keeps evolving. You almost, um, especially if you look at like I've started going into the marathon now. Marathons are just being run differently <laughs> now. It's not like something where oh, you you can do a marathon and you can kind of predict about what pace people are going to go at and you can kind of predict maybe when people are going to start dying because their legs are going to start getting sore with the introduction of maybe some of the different training methods, with the introduction of super shoes. People are just lasting longer. You need to almost be doing some of these 
these harder, faster workouts that maybe you could have gotten away with not doing before. But marathons are fast now. They're, they're getting even faster. And mm-hmm. so like, you just kind of have to change things up a little bit. And, and honestly, like Ron was saying, I mean, the, the time around the pandemic, things, things really shifted. And, mm. and whether that's with, with training philosophies starting to shift and people experimenting a little bit more because you have more of an opportunity to, to experiment when your athletes aren't racing because you don't have to worry about blowing them up because if you're not racing, who cares? Um, so you can afford to experiment a bit more, but then it was also right at that time you had super shoes started to even more readily become available into the mix. So people were recovering, recovering better so they can actually do more. They can handle more of a volume. They can handle these double thresholds. Maybe they can handle double, double threshold within the week. It's just, you can handle more. And so Mm -hmm. training is, is, and, and racing is just starting to change. One of the pieces that interested me about NAU in reading the book and then in talking with some of the alumni from the teams is that you have an interesting mix of this is the way that lumberjacks approach being on NAU and our training will follow where the science tells us to. And a lot of like the, the big programs, we are great because this is our way and this is our way. This got us good and we're sticking with it. And I think it's a real credit to a coach to say, I'm a national champ coach multiple times, and we're going to try a new way this year because I think there's something better. I think there's a huge ego hit that a lot of coaches get when they win a big title that cements that what I did was the way. But you guys have managed to pair, intertwine the, we have historical context for our culture, and we will use best practice for training. And I find that very, very intriguing about your program. If I can speak to that a little bit, I I think that as the program has evolved, we have taken some things, and Mike certainly has taken some things that are core to the program, and you eliminate the things that, with science, uh, isn't necessarily best practice anymore. You eliminate those things, and then you add something new in, and then you see if that new thing works, and if that doesn't work, you get rid of it and try something different so that you're constantly trying to come to perfection and you'll never reach it. But certainly the core values of team first, you know, you're, you're part of NAU community, you're part of Flagstaff that is ingrained in you from day one. And just walking around the community, you feel that, you know, you're, you're not football, basketball, you're a part of the cross country team. And that's what's so uh, unique about being in Flagstaff and, and living with Northern Arizona elite, Northern Arizona university cross country and taking that, that whole community has, has bolstered Northern Arizona university cross country. Let's talk about Flagstaff for a second. You start off the book uh, in the in the early chapter two, you paint a picture, right? It's uh, 1968. What is it? Mexico City Olympics? Is that what it was? Correct. Elevational, like 7,200 feet, and the athletes were like, "Are you kidding me? I'm gonna have to go run with one arm tied behind my back." You know, I train in sea level or wherever they are. And then you paint a picture of uh, like Jim Ryan, George Young, somehow nestling into Flagstaff because I believe Flagstaff's right about 7,000 feet. And the idea was 
let's go get ready for the Olympics, trained at elevation, and they landed in Flagstaff. Without that, like, I know that's a convenient place to start the story, and it worked on me because it stood out right away. Does that change anything? Like, Flagstaff, like, was it important to have Olympians choose that location back then? Or was Flagstaff going to be discovered regardless? What do you think? I think it was going to be discovered. I think that it certainly helped. But Flagstaff is is a mecca, and it's got it's very idyllic in that uh, it's got the perfect elevation, it's got the perfect trail system. I mean, the 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 uh, Forest Service roads going everywhere makes a huge difference in in the way you can train there, and the climate and and all of the things that are are so advantageous in Flagstaff, but certainly that was a kickstart to it all. And that, uh, you know, and then Jim Ryan and, and Billy Mills and George Young and, and all of them just loved the place. And it just ended up being a great environment for anybody to come and train. Our buddy who ran there talked about that there's something magical about it. And your book brings it up over and over. But he had the same story that everyone had in there, which is you open the door for the first time and the air is different. And you walk through town and it feels different. And he talked about post-collegiate. He was the, he ran for five years. And then when he left, he did a stint in Germany and a stint at Columbia. He said, but he keeps winding up back at Flagstaff. And that he ran into overtraining in Germany and had hiccups in, in New York. But he said that there's this... Whenever he comes back to Flagstaff, things just come together. He's less injured. He's faster on his runs, even though he should be slower at altitude. And he referenced this study that like human cuts will heal quicker when you're less stressed. And he said, there's something about that up there that you enter into this running Mecca, this like dome of running that everything's designed like you're going to recover better, even though you shouldn't sleep as well at altitude and you're going to run better because it's just special there. Well, and, and the other thing that's really unique about Flagstaff, you can go down to Sedona in a 45 minutes and get mm-hmm. below the cusp and you can get some quality training down there. Even when it's snowing at Flagstaff, you can drop down out of the the bad weather and get down into some really good training environment. And it gives you uh, some different scenery as well. And there's Sedona is one of the most beautiful places in the world as well. And then you come back up and, you know, and the whole idea of, you know, uh, live high and train low, that whole philosophy just is unique to Flagstaff by its simple geography. Mm-hmm. And so it's it just, like you said, it's a magical mm-hmm. place and everything is put together there. You finished yeah, you've out experienced now. it. Could you talk to us? Some, oh, well, yeah. oh, go ahead. Yeah, you, you popped out of college and you, you found your training group there. Mm-hmm. Now, he talked about how his teammates went aimless until they got back there. Like, what do we even do after NAU cross country? Like, what is real world after this? And you got to stay and train there. What was that that like? You've experienced this. I could go run anywhere else, but you chose there. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate uh, to be able to stay in Flagstaff. When I was, when my time with the NAU team was done in, in December of 2018, I basically, I had narrowed it down myself to two decisions. Either I move back to New Zealand and I, I try to make the running thing work there, which admittedly I had tried to do before coming to Flagstaff, which is why I waited until I was 21 to come over here. I, I kind of had my fingers crossed that I could make it work. And unfortunately, I just couldn't quite. Uh, I had 
great coaching and I love being there, but it's just the level of competition over here is different. Um, and so I was deciding, do I go back to New Zealand, go home, try and get myself a contract or do I stay in Flagstaff? Because I basically didn't want to move anywhere else in the US hmm. and have to go through a whole nother possible culture shock and try and make friends and get used to a whole new city. I just, I didn't want to go through all that. I'd already gone through that when I moved to Flagstaff. And so uh, when New Zealand wasn't looking like a realistic option, that one kind of got taken out of the mix and it was like hey what can i do how can i stay in flagstaff and i talked with ben rosario who's coach of northern arizona elite at the time and now is the executive director of the group and so i had had a bit of a relationship with him just from living here i trusted naz was going to be a, a great team to join and it allowed me to stay in flagstaff which i really wanted to do and speaking to your point about how running here how how you just can recover and it's it's just like a perfect environment i I just would give the example of where I'm living right now. And this is similar to a lot of places where you would live in Flagstaff. Um, I mean, I get out my door, I start running within 90 seconds, like literally 90 seconds. It might even be slightly less. I'm on the urban trail system and I won't touch road for the, the rest of my run. I go, I take the urban trail system south out towards Fort Tut Hill, which we talk about maybe a little bit in the book mm -hmm. that leads out to Woody Mountain Road. I mean, I could, from my house, spend 90 seconds on the road and then I could, I could spend, if I kept going on, onto Woody Mountain, I mean, we're talking 30 miles maybe of me just running. And mm. I could go the opposite way and I could take the urban trail east. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things which Flagstaff has an advantage is that if you have to do a ton of your running on the road or on pavement, I mean, that just beats you up more. And if the altitude is already beating you up and then your legs are getting beat up because you're spending a lot of time on pavement, then you're just, you're just not going to be recovering. So for us to be able to get on soft surface immediately when you want to, and you can do your easy runs on that. Um, and often a lot of the, the urban trails are rolling. So you're getting a little bit of seek, uh, sneaky, uh, strength training as well through going through these, through these uh, rolling sections of trail, um, mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel that hard because it's it's nothing crazy for the most part. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing where it where it feels good running uh, running up here. And then there's even things that look. I I throw on a humidifier at night, and then it doesn't feel dry at night, and I can sleep fine. It's really easy to to uh, mess with the environment here so you can sleep fine so that you can you can recover fine um and also having so many runners in town you you if you talk to them you learn really quickly hey you should probably keep your easy days pretty easy that's the best way to recover um and you start learning about i don't know like uh, how hard to push your hard days if you can really get that down to a science I mean, you'll recover fine. And and we just have such great facilities here. We have Hypo 2. We have lots of great medical facilities to be able to get on top of treatment. And so you just, you kind of have everything to make sure that Flagstaff is a good place to base yourself. Hmm. Mm. We just had a, a conversation with Matt Fitzgerald, what, a month ago, maybe? Um, and you know, he are you familiar with his dream run camp that he has started? Are either of you familiar with that? Well, he yeah, chose I, I Flagstaff. You are familiar? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, okay. Well, he chose Flagstaff for a reason, right? To give the average everyday runner a chance to go live, train in the most euphoric environment he could think of. And that was Flagstaff. So I don't think you're alone when, in the way you're describing it, it's like, Christ, I live next to a county highway and 
either direction for a mile is the edge of a 55 mile an hour road. Like screw off, Matt. That sounds utopic. Um, I want to, a couple of things. I want to talk a little bit more about the book. And I also want to ask you one specific question, Ron, about funding. Um, and cause it's brought up in the book and, um, a little bit. And so we just, as I mentioned, we talked to my uh, head coach, my alma mater, it's a division three school. And I don't want to know your salaries or anything like that, but he was alluding towards the fact like he might make $30,000 a year coaching the men's and women's team in a Division three university, and their hands are tied behind their backs, and the amount of resources they have rely heavily on the alumni and, and all of those things. And this is a Division three program that was successful, now is somewhere in the gray area, right? And in the book, uh, it sounds like funding was initially, it's probably been an issue or it was an issue at, you know, NAU at a, at a time. Can you just talk to me? Because we have a comparison. A few weeks ago, we talked to a Division three head one, uh, coach who basically has no resources. And then I'm assuming it's a little different Division one. But like, how has the funding happened? Does it rely on the alumni? Like, is that still a struggle in Division one top tier athletics? Uh, what is it like? I guess I'm looking for a, a discrepancy conversation in regards to that. Okay, so. Let's talk specifically at Northern Arizona when I started the women's program in 1980. Um, sure. It was it's a it's a it's a state run school, so you're completely dependent on state state funding, and there was very little funding at that point in time, and particularly uh, women's athletics was just coming online at the NCAA level, and so there was very little funding, and and uh, so you know you got one pair of shoes. Uh, one pair of sweats, a couple of t-shirts, and that was pretty much it. And, uh, we were limited. At, when I was going to school, we couldn't travel a full squad of seven. We would take six and, and hopefully we could, you know, we could get it done. And, and the first trip to Oklahoma City, I think when we talked about it in the book, it was in a borrowed uh, station wagon from, uh, Babbitt Ford. So there was very little funding at, during that time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and Northern Arizona University and, and all sports, it has ballooned over the course of, you know, the, the, the rich gets richer and so on and so forth. And it, it trickles down too. And so, you know, certainly Northern Arizona University, they don't have any trouble with uh, getting equipment now and uh, the funding. I mean, I, I, I watch uh, Mike and I'm, I'm a little jealous in that, you know, he'll go in with a, a group of 12 on each side and I'm, I'm really glad for him. And I, to see that happening, that's the way it's supposed to be. And uh, so, uh, and again, Northern Arizona has done that. And then, you know, when I came to university of Louisville, I mean, you're in a power five and the money that is in a power five program is phenomenal. But, but when you get right back down to it, it's just about putting one foot in front of the other. And so, you know, certainly uh, cross country can be a, a great opportunity to have a great program that you don't have to put a ton, a ton of money into, but certainly the funding has to be there and you have to have a commitment from the athletic administration and the president of the university. And I think that that's really what has transpired at Northern Arizona specifically, but in general, uh, there's so much money and more money in collegiate athletics now because of the money in football and basketball that trickles down to everybody. 
Is that, um, and maybe it's an ignorant question, but um, is that where the money, I always wonder about that, right? Like a football stadium in division one fills up and tickets are sold and there's paraphernalia. Like, I don't know how many people are buying Nico young jerseys at the school shop, you know, wearing them around on like a Friday night, right? Like they're not probably generating a lot of revenue there. So is that what you think it is in the running space is a lot of it is, is second part funding by the the big sports in quotes, is that where a lot of the internal funding comes from for run programs? I think your key is your athletics director and your, and your president and their buy-in to cross country and track and field specifically. And uh, fortunately uh, during my time, I generally had an athletics director that was very supportive. When I first started at Northern Arizona, I had an athletics director that was very supportive and, and no, we didn't have the big salaries or any of that stuff, but he certainly, uh, supported us. And then, uh, I had an athletics director in, uh, 1988, Tom Jurich, who, uh, very much supported what I was doing in cross country, even though he was a football player himself, but he realized the uniqueness of Flagstaff and Northern Arizona University cross country. And he supported us very well. And then he went on to Colorado State and then came to University of Louisville and was my athletics director at University of Louisville as well. So I think the key is having an athletic administration that supports your sport and particularly an AD that supports cross country. And and that's what NAU has and uh, particularly, you know, they, they're really supportive of uh, in, in 2016 when we when they won the national championship, the president, her husband, the athletic director, and the commissioner of the Big Sky Conference were all at the national championship. Mm. That is very unique. That mm. doesn't happen, you know, at many, many places. And so, you know, and, and to have a crowd following the way that Northern Arizona does. So it's it's evolved over time. And, and there was, and I think the book, what you're referring to it, is the book talks about a time when there there was a, a recession in there and all of the cutbacks were coming and, and, and it got very difficult for NAU to get their funding spread out enough. So the athletics directors had to make some decisions and, and there were some constrictions to everybody. Everybody took about a 10% cut and uh, it, it affected cross country some too. And, and certainly uh, you mm. saw a little dip in there. Speaking from a, an admin perspective, one of the things that jumped out from the book was the insistence upon having a head track coach be a distance guy. And that was not something I'd ever even, it had never crossed my mind how important that could be to a program so that cross country doesn't become a second class citizen. And the way that NAU, and I don't recall who drove that decision, if that was yourself or if that was someone else, but insisting that the head coach job go to someone who is cross-country based or at least long distance based is just such an intelligent move in hindsight, but had to have been kind of forefront thinking at the time. Certainly, if you're talking about 1980, you know, my, my mentor was a, it was a cross-country guy and, and he came from football, but he certainly uh, understood that uh, when you're in Flagstaff, you, you play what you've got. And certainly he realized that uh, distance running was going to be the the place. And, and certainly uh, when, when I retired from Northern Arizona, uh, there was a decision made 
by the administration. And, and it was a good decision at the time in that uh, the J.W. Hardy had a great knowledge of the program. And he brought in uh, a very qualified uh, distance coach. But also when you're trying to uh, run an entire program and uh, track and field, and as you allocate scholarships, you know, you've got to make a significant contribution to uh, cross country if you want to have a great cross country program, particularly other schools that are doing that, you know, places like, uh, you know, Oregon or University of Wisconsin, even, you know, mm-hmm. it puts a great deal of their funding into funding. And you only got 12.6 scholarships. So when you got 12.6 scholarships, you got to make a decision how many of those you're going to allocate to to cross country. And so certainly that is important. And uh, I think that it works best if you're going to be a, a quality cross country program, if you got a director that understands at least what's what cross country is all about. Let's talk about you two writing this book together. I'm trying to do the math here because by my calculations, your paths never officially crossed. As far as I know here, we have, you know, Matt coming over from New Zealand long after you're gone, Ron. Uh, How did did you two – I wouldn't have picked you two out of, like, the lineup. I'm like, yeah, these two guys are, like, tight. They're going to write a book together about, you know, about this. How did you two – how did this come together? Personal curiosity. Do you want me to start with that, Matt, or you want him? Uh, you can stop it there, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so, uh, <laughs> so when I there was a podcast or something that came out, and and the way the book really started was that Eric Hines uh, was being interviewed and said, you know, how does it feel to have started the NAU cross country program and really got it to where it's at, and. Eric Hines replied back and said, I can't take credit for that. Ron Mann was my mentor, and he started the program. Well, when I got heard of his comment, I said, I got on and I said, well, I can't take credit for that. Um, My mentor started the program. So then I decided I had several people reach out to me and say, if anybody's going to write a book, you've got to do it because you're the only one that has the entire history of the program from 1968 to now. And so I contacted Eric Hines and I said, I want to write a book. I can't write. I need somebody that can help me to write that has knowledge of the program now. And so Eric says, I've got just the guy. So I reached out to Matt and I said, Matt, I've got this idea. Now, I've got to correct you a little bit there. And Matt and I had actually met, not really met, but we sort of met, 2016. I'm a guy that's, he doesn't know who he is. And I'm running around the course and I'm pretty excited about what they're doing. And uh, I get pretty emotional when they win their national championship. And and Matt probably going, who's this wild man? And so uh, we did meet. And uh, so (laughs) then... Uh, so I contacted uh, Matt uh, through Eric, and so we talked, and now I'll turn it over to Matt from his vantage point of how we got together. Yeah, so I, and I, I mean, I do have to agree. I don't, I don't actually recall us meeting in 2016. But in, to, what I would add to that is, 
I remember someone coming around, this, this actually wasn't you, but someone was coming around and, and hugging all of us athletes and saying, congratulations, and it's amazing what you guys have done. And I went up to one of the coaches afterwards and I said, who, who was that person who was like going around hugging us? And then Jared Cornfield, <laughs> our, who was a graduate assistant at the time, he said, Matt, that's the university president. You need to, you need to know who that is. And so I was like, Oh my goodness. I realize I have no idea who some of these people are who are here, who I should know. Uh, the university president at that time was Rita Chang. Funnily enough, when I got back from my Pittsburgh team Myla just recently, she was on the same flight home. And so I talked to her afterwards. She congratulated us on the book, Ron. She was really excited about it. Um, so I now a hundred percent know who the university president was at the time then. Um, but yeah, I just, I had no idea. I didn't know about all these people who were excited about the program and, and Ron was included in that. And even in 2017, when we rocked up at Louisville and, 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 and Ron was there and, and he was going to show us a place to run. And so he's there in his, his Porsche in a parking lot and our NAU team van rocks up and there's this guy who we're going to follow to some, some spot that we're going to run in. And, uh, so that was where I feel like I first remember meeting you. Um, was in Louisville when you were showing us a, a, a great spot to run. Uh, unfortunately, some of us got lost and we actually ended up going a little bit longer than we intended. But at the same time, that actually helped warm me up for the race. And, and I got second, so who cares? Uh, and so the, I just knew Ron just from these little bits of things, just from from nationals and particularly after the national meet in 2017. That was when I really realized, oh, this this Ron man guy, he's someone who's incredibly passionate about the program. I, I could see that in his face. I could see that when, when Mike Smith gifted him, gifted you, uh, his miniature NCAA trophy after the meet. I mean, your face just showed that you care about, I, I could tell you cared about this more than anyone else in the room. And I couldn't quite understand why I was like, I mean, I know he's a coach, but 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 why does he seem to show the emotion that none of us quite get? And once we worked on this book together, I could understand because you know this more than anyone else. And so when Ron had reached out and said that, yeah, he was looking at writing this book, that was what I was thinking about. I was thinking about Ron is this guy who I don't know a lot about. I actually didn't even know he was he was an athlete on the team. Um from 1968 to 72, I just knew he was someone who was more passionate about this thing than anyone else. And so I, I did have to spend sort of a day to think about, is this something I, I am willing to sign on to? Because I knew that this was going to be a big project and I knew mm. how important this was, not only to ROM, but to NAU and Flagstaff. And I mean, this is the, this is our story. This is the story of our city, of, of our school and something which I care deeply for. And, and I was worried. Well, well what if I, I couldn't do it justice with the words I end up putting together? Uh, but at the same time, I knew, I mean, I would regret it. If, if I said to Ron, Hey, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not going to be the man. I think it's going to be someone else. And I knew I would look back on that and I, I would regret that decision. And so, yeah, thankfully we, we ended up going in this together and, and we signed on with Solstice Publishing and they've been incredible. Uh, they were actually really helpful with putting some of the aspects together and helping guide the story kind of in the right direction hmm. when we, I guess at times were a little bit lost. Um, and yeah, I mean, we ended up, I think between me, Ron and Solstice Pub Publishing, I think we we ended up being the perfect team to to put this together. Well, I was reading the book and I started coming across things I was aware of. And then Jordan uh, Chippengama jumped off the page. And I was like, I know that name. My buddy was his roommate on road trips. 
And so I call him up right away. I'm like, Hey, so we're, we're, we're interviewing Ron and Matt. He's like, wait, Ron, who tell him? He's like, why, why? But it wasn't a, why are you? He said, why is he talking to you? And, and he just couldn't, he said, Ron is a legend at NAU. He said, I would give anything to sit down and have an NAU history conversation with Ron. And he just like went on waxing poetically about all these things that, you know, and then it, it kicked him off down his memories there and how Ron built it and why it's important and everything they did. Now, like Nico being there is only because Ron was there. Like, you know, the timeline, the threads everywhere. And, but it was just his instant disbelief that a normal person would just get to chat with Ron about NAU. And that right there in that moment, I realized this is, <laughs> this is as special as they're saying it is. And he never met you. Really? Yeah. I, I think I have met him, but I, I think he was. Oh, sorry. There. Not, 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 uh, not Jordan, but Jordan's roommate. Oh, okay. At the time. okay. Yeah. Jordan, Jordan went on and became an Olympian and yeah, all that. Yeah. John Yatsko did not, but John yeah, who yeah. never met you is in awe of the fact that we get to yeah. chat. So it just cemented how special that the athlete, like he was a walk on and earned his scholarship, his fourth year kind of thing. Like he was a, the classic NAU, no one to all American story. Yeah. Never met you, but that's classic. Knows that he's there because you were there, and it was just hear that in his voice was really cool. It 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 really and and that's what is so unique about Northern Arizona. Uh, let's take Tyler Day for example. Mm. You know, Tyler Day is a great example of you know he he wasn't great coming out of high school. He's good, he's good, but certainly you know. He blossomed while at NAU. Mm -hmm. Matt Baxter blossomed while at NAU. And you can see that over and over and over again because of the culture that is there. And and you mentioned a, a, a point there, a thread. And it's that thread that runs through the program mm -hmm. that you can't get other places. And I can't even identify it. It's amazing what it does. You just buy into it. And every kid, as they walk onto that team, knows that they're valued, whether they're going to be first or last or anywhere in between. And, you know, you just bring it all to the table. And you look at the diversity within that program from top to bottom, side to side. And the fact of combining the men's and women's program, when we did that in 1982, it was virtually unheard of. They thought I was crazy to do that. There's only one other program or a few that were doing that at that point in time. And now, you know, that's that's standard operating procedure. And I couldn't imagine coaching a men's team without a women's team. I couldn't. I know that it it it's just, you know, it's a brotherhood, sisterhood, and and you pull for one another. Hmm. Yeah, that one of those well, common threads seems to be that everyone believes that they'll have a role there, even though they shouldn't. That walk on to all American concept. Even look at like Abdi Noor, who just ran what thirteen o in a five k as a collegiate athlete, was what like a nine twenty seven two miler in high school, which is a very good high school time. And I and I don't know if I'm getting the seconds right on that, but I thought he was nine twenty seven, and now he's a thirteen o five k runner because something in the water or the air at NAU says. Just stick around. You're welcome here and you're going to be really fast someday. And people seem to believe they seem to have like almost inappropriate belief in the process up there. 
non-rational, maybe. I, I think that that's a thread that has gone through the coaching regime all the way through, and and you know, and and they bought into each of the coaches. If you look at at the coaching uh, string there, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, from Leo Haberlack to myself to J.W. Hardy to Eric Hines and now to Mike Smith. I mean, every one of them believes in the system. And when I say the system, the idea, the thread that you are valued here, you are respected here, and you're going to get good here. Mm-hmm. And and it's it just works because who doesn't want to be believed in, you know, and and if you as a athlete believe that your coach wants you to be successful and is as passionate as each one of those coaches I just mentioned are about the place and the program, you know, there's a reason why Mike Smith's still there. He could have been a lot of other places. There's a lot of places that Eric Hines could have been when he stepped aside and J.W. Hardy, you know, each one of them had other opportunities, but Flagstaff special and, and, you know, Mike needs to stay there because that's a great spot for him. It's perfect. Yeah, when we interviewed uh, the gentleman Bracken's talking about the alum John Yatskow, he was uh, hanging on to the back end of the team for a majority of his time there, and he still felt like he was as valued, and he describes this to us, as valued as the number one guy at the time, the emotional investment, the time investment uh, he described that to us in our, we, we interviewed him what three years ago, Bracken, but mm-hmm. before we knew we'd be talking to you guys and, you know, not understanding the thread that makes it so special, Ron might be because you're, you are the thread, right? You're a segment of that thread. It's harder to see when you're, you are the thread, you know? And so maybe part of not understanding it is because you are it. Right. And so it's might be, you know, it's hard to, to bring it down that way, but I think that's how it works. I so think they, I, I think they the book three yep. strands together are stronger. Three strands together. Hmm. Yeah. How many coaches has it been since when you left? Has there been two? two how many different coaches? Two or three? There's been Mike is number four uh, after me. Mike's number there's four. been five coaches since 1964. That's unique in a yeah, collegiate. That's environment. incredible. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the book, and you guys writing it. Who who should read your book and what can they expect to get out of it? Who who would be a good candidate to read your book and why? I would say anyone who is in a position of leadership or a person who is looking for a way to join into something bigger than themselves should read the book. Because as we mentioned, the thread that goes through it, is building any organization and not trying to do it too quickly or haphazardly, but to the 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 ability to look at something over time and see it develop and not get in a hurry is very, very important. And and so I think a young reader who is a young high school kid can read the end of the book and see the end of the story. But they might not see the beginning of the story until they read the whole story, where if you're a history buff, you'd probably be interested in the beginning of the story and reading about, you know, uh, a Jim Ryan and a Conrad Nightingale and a Billy Mills. Well, 
A young person wouldn't even know who those people are. But once they see where the program is, they could go back and see where it came from, you know. So it's it's a, a lesson in tenacity, I think, more so than anything else. Yeah, I, I would actually say I think it and I I completely agree with Ron and, and I think when I look at this this project on more of a personal note, when when I came to to NAU, I had absolutely zero idea as to what I was walking into. I had never been to the US before. Certainly I've said then had never been to Flagstaff and and so I was really felt like I was taking a giant leap in coming over here. And had I had this book to read, and regardless if if this was me coming to NAU or, or any other program around the country, had I had this book, I could get an idea on what I was walking into. That I'm walking into a program that has a history that's that far exceeds me and is going to go way beyond my time there. It's going to keep going even after I'm gone. Um, and it's something that people care deeply about. Um, and also it's something that can be really fun that when you come over here as, as an international, oftentimes it's just, you kind of have a narrow focus of like, man, I'm, I'm coming from wherever I'm coming from in the world. I'm leaving my family. I, I don't even know when I'm going to be able to go home next. And so I need to kind of make this thing work that I want to go out there. I want to perform the best I can as an individual. And so that when, when I'm done here, maybe that sets me up beyond college to be running, or maybe that I can just look back and feel like I have a good career. The thing I didn't realize was how invested I was going to get in the program. When, when I was at university back in New Zealand, we don't have any kind of collegiate setup or anything like that. And I remember one day seeing a guy walking around and he was wearing a t-shirt that had our university's name on it. And I thought, why are you wearing that? Like you're trying to, like, why are you trying to advertise our university? Like you have to pay tuition here. You're, you're like a walking around billboard. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? And then now I wear NAU everywhere. I like when you come onto a program mm -hmm. and you get invested into it in a university, like you do as a student athlete here. Oh my gosh. Like I just, I am so proud of NAU. I absolutely love it to death. And so I think that's one of the things which I think is so special about our book is that it gives you an inside look as to how that kind of evolves. And, and even when you look at the story of David McNeil, who was an Australian who came over to, to NAU and, and he was really reluctant to get involved in, in the, the, the culture of the team because it's so different. It's so in your face and, and, um, it's just really different to, to what you're used to. But once you get in it and you buy into it, it's the funnest thing. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think this book is great for international athletes. It's great for any kind of athletes throughout the country who just want a, a better understanding of why athletes get so passionate about their college program. And that doesn't even have to be running. That can apply to any sport. I mean, this could also apply to a football player. Why does a football player care as much about their program as they do? The history and stuff, it's all the same. It's all building blocks and it's all an evolving culture getting to a point. Um, and so I think that's really special, but also it's just, it can just have a universal appeal to just about anyone who's interested in sport, who's anyone who's interested in running, collegiate, high school, whatever. I think it just, it's a good blueprint for, for how to build a successful program, how to build a successful town. <laughs> to be to be a place that people want to come to um and it's also a perfect read as we go beyond the paris olympics and we start getting ready for la 2028 because guess where everyone is going to go before la 2028 
we're a stone throw away here in Flagstaff. The world is going to come to mm-hmm. Flagstaff. And you want to know about why the world's going to come to Flagstaff? Read the book. <laughs> That's that would be that would be my way of putting it. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Kirk, I assume we're working what? towards wrapping this, but prior to that, yes, sir. as a fan of the sport, I'm going to be upset with myself if I don't ask. I have Ron here in front of me. May never happen again in my life, so I have to ask it. Any sport has the age-old debate, then versus now. And I think every sport agrees that the the B tier, the C tier is as good as the A tier used to be. Like the depth to every sport is is so much advanced. But the very top, the very top, the best of the 60s, 80s to now where it stands. And you had the honor of seeing Jim Ryan for who for my money is as spectacularly talented as anyone we've ever produced. Like I'd probably say he and Alan Webb are the two most spectacular runners of the middle distance that the United States has ever seen. Those gentlemen back then, where do they stack up with the very best of today? If they're in today's climate with today's training and today's super shoes and all of that, where are the Jim Ryans of the world? Well, Jim Ryan, certainly, I mean, you look at what he ran in, in 1968 and, and how that transpired. If you put him in the, the facilities and, and with the shoes and so on in today's world, I mean, he, he had a perfect body for, uh, being a 1500 meter runner specifically. And, and certainly, you know, George Young, he was just tough as nails. I mean, he was, I don't care what, uh, sport he would have been in. He would have been a winner because he was just tough. And, and I think that if you look at how, how they would produce in today's world, certainly they would be at the top of their sport because that's where they were. And you look at, you know, who they competed against, you know, it was the first time we really competed against the Africans, you know, Kipchoge Kino against Jim Ryan. It was, and it's that way again today. So I think that they would compete at the highest levels in today's world just as well. I I would actually make a point with the, we had, we got this information kind of late, but I, I think we were able to sneak it into the book that Jim Ryan did a, a time trial 1968 Lumberjack Stadium, the same track that NAU run on now, and he ran 148 for an eight eight hundred where well, 880 yard, which I think is in 800 meters um, mm-hmm. or approximately. Um, so him running 148, 1968, 7,000 feet. I've been living here for I'm going on eight years. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen <laughs> someone else go out on the track and rip an 800 and 148. That's just that. That kind of thing has just stood the test of time. Um, I'm almost adamant that the track must have been short. I, <laughs> no, I'll give him full credit. Uh, it, I mean, it's just you hear something like that. But then yet again, he went to 7,200 meters at, um, or 7,200 feet for Mexico City, and he ran 337. So, yeah, that's probably, that's probably translates pretty well. Um, yeah, I mean, the times those guys were running then – yeah, you don't you don't see a lot of people still running those kind of times. I mean, George Young ripping sixty second laps, just twelve twelve by uh, twelve by four hundred and sixties. There's still not a lot of people who can do that up here. Mm-hmm. 
and you look at the shoes. I mean, the shoes have made a huge difference in in mm-hmm. training and and racing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, particularly the longer runs. Uh, the marathon has been, uh, you know, completely revolutionized by the shoes. And and you were you mentioned something earlier on. You know, and Matt mentioned the same thing. You know, when you throw a four thirty six mile on a two hour uh, uh, marathon in the middle of the race. I mean, <laughs> y- you can't do that with the old shoes that we, you didn't do that in a Converse, an old Converse. You just didn't do it. No, no, you didn't. Did you? I put on my first pair of, uh, dragonflies. I, I'm a 40 year old chasing masters times. And I put on my first pair of dragonflies, ran on the track, ran a night race in like, I don't know, 15, 17, which for me was fantastic. But I remember wearing maybe my Kennedys or my Jassaris of old back in the early 2000s. And I put on these dragonflies. And I was like, these are different. These tra- Even from the early 2000s, I was like, this dragonfly, this gives me something that those shoes never gave me. And that's down to, what? what is that, a couple millimeters stack height. And it's still giving something back. So I think there's something to it. I was astonished. I didn't put on a pair of spikes in like a decade. So that really blew me away. But um, all right. I got one last thing then that I, I'm curious about. And just on a personal note for both of you. Um, since we got you, Matt, what are you doing? What's, what's in your future racing and training plans? What are you aspiring for? What do you, what do you plan on doing these next few months and into the 2024 season? What's, what's going on with you coming up? Yep. So in about two or two and a half weeks, I'm racing CIM marathon. Um, I know, man. Yeah. I, I hear great things about it. I hear it's a great course and it can be really good fields and, um, so I'm going over there looking to just get a really good one on the board. Um, and then beyond that, I'm, I'm still a little bit unsure. I've been dealing with my, my fair share of injuries beyond college. Um, and so I'm actually the healthiest I've ever been. My body is actually starting to feel really good. And so I'm going to spend a couple of months here, um, through December, January, back in New Zealand, working with a strength coach, really trying to get my body in a good place. And then basically, I just want to hit the road racing scene, man. The the US has an incredible road racing scene over here. I've gotten little taste of it. Um, but when I did, I ran Bloomsday this year, and it was like one of the funnest runs I have done in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I, I want to do more of this. I really enjoy this. And so I think I'm going to do a bunch of road racing and then, and then trying to look at, at hitting another fast marathon, maybe later in the year is the plan. What road races are on your list? Like are you going after the classics or some lesser known? You know, I, I'll be looking at ones like, like the cherry. Yeah. Classics, the cherry blossom. I'll be looking at, looking at Bloomsday. I did Boulder Boulder. No, sorry, mm. not Boulder Boulder. I did, um, Boilermaker. Okay. Uh, a year ago, but I was super hurt. And so I couldn't finish it, but it was one of those races where I'm like, ah, I feel like it rolls really well. I feel like I could do really well here. So I, I'll look at going back to that one. I really want to do like the Boston 5k. I just want a, a good mix of different stuff. Cause I feel like I still have a bit of speed and, um, a Geordie Beamish, a, a fellow New Zealander, he, um, I broke the New Zealand 5k record and then within like a, a couple of months, he took it right back off me. And so now I need to go back out and try and get that back. So I want to do a road 5k and I just, I just want to mix it up, have fun racing on the roads and, um, yeah, do, do a bunch of different stuff. I honestly, I just mentioned Boulder Boulder. I would honestly I'd love to do Boulder Boulder, but mm-hmm. with the team set up, it's so hard for me to get a bunch of New Zealanders together to do it. Um, I was really hoping to do it this year, but. 
there weren't enough Kiwis who were, who were interested in lining up for a 10K race at altitude. It's it is a bit of a hard sell. So hopefully I can do Boulder Boulder in the future as well. Yeah. Can you combine with some Aussies or is that a no-go? I Yes, it, it was going to be a go. And I reached out. I, I won't say who I reached out to. I reached out to different Australian athletes who are really high profile and mm-hmm. uh, who are based over here. But it's just hard timing. Like people have like a world champs they're getting ready for or they have a marathon or something. It's mm. so, yeah, because there was the option of possibly doing an Oceania team, which would have been sweet. Cause I think Morgan we, we and really Ali well. and a whole bunch of Wisconsin guys. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, Wisconsin is good for the Aussie pipeline. Yeah, yeah so I... I know, <laughs> man. Well, maybe, maybe the Ong group is just going to do their own thing because they have, I mean, Probably, they're yeah. in Boulder. They got Geordie, they got Ollie, they got Morgan. That maybe they could throw me in there. I feel like <laughs> I would be lucky to be on that team. So everyone yeah, needs we'll a six see. man. Yeah. Man. Exactly, man. Yeah. I never called myself, <laughs> never considered myself much of a six man, but I'll, I I'll take imagine. it out. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Ron? What do you have coming up? Anything of note? Obviously, the book and. Uh, anything on the docket for you we should keep our eyes for? Uh, well, yeah, uh, I'm I'm working with uh, John Career uh, that's out of Kenya with Wesley's little brother, and he got fourth this last uh, uh, couple less last month at uh, Chicago at two o five o nine, and uh, I'd like to get him down mm-hmm. in the two o three two o four range, and uh, mm-hmm. so he's he's looking at uh, probably going. Uh, either Tokyo or, or Boston or, or, uh, uh, one of the other European races possibly. And, and I'm also, uh, Wesley, his older brother has started a transcend running Academy, which I'm advising. Uh, he's got about a hundred kids over there that he is, uh, he's training. And so I'm writing the base workout for them. And then we've got a coach on site over there that's, uh, doing the hands-on. So, uh, more of mine is now philanthropic work to try and uh, get some of these kids over to the United States to get them an education, and then uh, they go back to Kenya and, and hopefully make uh, uh, a better life for other people back in Kenya. I've got a real heart for the Kenyan people. They're hmm. they're great people. So I'm doing that and uh, and uh, enjoying uh, going out to to Phoenix to see my grandkids and, and getting up to Flagstaff for, uh, some races up there and, uh, just enjoying the world. Uh, I'm now in my, uh, I guess you would say I'm in my 51st year of coaching and I'm still enjoying it and still want to do a lot more of it. So as long as I'm vertical and I can set, hold a stand, a stopwatch, I'm going to still be there. <laughs> I love that. Brack, and you got anything else you want to wedge in there? If we wrap think- this up. That's as good a quote to end on as any. So the book's called Running Up the Mountain. You can get it anywhere, I suppose, guys, other than Audible. Hey, yeah, we'll we'll have an ebook out here real soon. I think the the two key places you can get it is is Amazon right now and Solstice Publishing. Great. I think that's a wrap, guys. We really appreciate your time today. I know we went a little long, so thanks for your patience and uh, appreciate the conversation. Good luck this weekend down at Nationals. Yeah, that's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I'm, no, I'm heading out tomorrow morning. I'm driving over to, I'm driving over and we're going to go through <laughs> the Appalachian Mountains and enjoy the day driving down. And then, uh, very good. Uh, we'll be catching up with the team, uh, tomorrow evening and, uh, uh, going out to, I've got tickets to the race and I understand that they're very hard to come by. They've got it. It's a sold out 
competition. They, it's, I didn't know that was a thing. It, it, it's not until this year. This is the first year. <laughs> it's, uh, you had to pre-register to get a wow. uh, a uh, ticket to the meet. So uh, look out, football. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so if anybody watching the live stream sees a crazy man hugging everybody after NAU wins, you could probably suspect it's Ron. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Who is a crazy man? All right, All right guys. Well, thanks Thank again. You. Yeah, Thank thanks, you. Guys. Uh-huh. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye.